This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have a all-star cast. I'm very excited to have three guests on the show we're doing a loop cast on Homegrown, ISIS in America, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend anyone interested in the topic or even not interested in the topic, but wanting to learn about how ISIS was involved here in the States to definitely pick up the book. So first of all, I want to welcome Alexandra Milligrugu Hitchens to the show, Seamus Hughes and Bennett Clifford. So thank you for all finding the time to come on the loop cast. Yeah, us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Looking forward to it once again. Yes, so for our listeners, Alex is a lecturer in terrorism and radicalization at King's College in London and the research director at George Washington Programs on Program on Extremism, excuse me. And Seamus Hughes is the deputy director of the Program on Extremism. And Bennett Clifford is a senior research fellow at the Program on Extremism. And he's also pursuing a degree at Tufts University right now. So congratulations with that. I hope it's going well. Why don't we start off discussing the inspiration for this book and also your sources of data and research for it, because it's definitely packed with a ton of amazing information. So maybe I'll start and Alex and Bennett can, can jump in. You know, the, the reason we, we decided to do this book was the general question of what does ISIS in America look like, right? And so as researchers, you know, it's a, a bit of a daunting task, and we didn't feel like there was a kind of definitive um, look at this. And so... What we did was spend a number of years looking at, I don't know, about 20,000 pages of legal documents, interviewing prosecutors around the country, FBI case agents on these, on these investigations, family members, men and women who had traveled to Syria and Iraq and had come back with the general sense of, you know, what does this actually mean? And so the program on extremism has always been investigative in its nature, right? It's one thing to have a court record. It's another thing to have an interview. And so... We try to combine all of that to get to the reader a general sense of, of what the, the threat landscape looks like for ISIS support in the U.S. Yeah, and I think um, also at a, a sort of macro level, sort of as a case study, the book is also very useful and even beyond those interested in ISIS or jihadism. More, you know, we also kind of presented it as, as, a, as a case study of how a terrorist group can continue to function in, in some meaningful way in a country where it has no real grassroots support or, or real uh, presence. And in that sense as well, it's a useful book in order to kind of explain how, especially with modern technology and, and, other, and through other means, these kind of violent non-state actors can, can remain relevant and can present at some level of threat to a country where they don't even really physically exist in any, in any sort of formal sense. Yeah, and the, the last thing I'd add to, to what Alex said, sort of building off of it, is I think the book will also be useful for people who are studying jihadism in other contexts, uh, specifically the rise of ISIS recruitment in other contexts, both uh, in North America and Western Europe, but also in other contexts as well. The book sort of another sort of macro level analysis that I think the, the book frames itself as is being able to compare the American experience, which in some ways was unique or unrelatable to other contexts of jihadist foreign fighter recruitment in the West and do that level of a comparative analysis to other contexts as well. So when we think of ISIS in America, what types of numbers are we looking at? And what is the average age of individuals that were interested in doing something connected to ISIS? So what are sort of the demographics of an ISIS individual in America? So the, the joys of doing this three ways, we're all deferring to each other. So let me jump in real quick and then we can dive in. So the, the, the takeaway is, is there's not a typical profile of an ISIS recruit, right? They're old, they're young, they're rich, they're poor, they're you know black, they're white, they're converts and they're reverts to the faith. Now they all share the same ideology and, and, and narrative when it comes to ISIS, but they come after it in a different way. Now, one of the main takeaways from the report is we can't discount the importance and power 
of the announcement of a so-called caliphate by Baghdadi, right? That was in many ways a driver for Americans to go join uh, the movement. And it's the reason why we saw unprecedented numbers um, happening. So it's a combination of the ease of social media to be able to recruit and, and radicalize folks in the U.S. It's a combination of um, the having physical space and, and, and having essentially a bug light to attract folks. And then it's, it's just all of that wrapped together. And you get a sense that, you know, people came at this from very different um, socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that, but all drawn to this central notion of joining ISIS. Anyone else want to chip in on that before our next question? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the the interesting things that the book shows about sort of the trajectory of American ISIS supporters is sort of something that's been shown in other contexts as well, sort of this this two waves hypothesis, wherein in the early stages of, of the conflict in Syria, especially, you have Americans who in these court documents are expressing interest in the broad sense of, of traveling to the region, mainly for the sense of fighting the Assad regime. They were sort of agnostic as to which sort of jihadist group they were thinking about supporting or joining if they traveled overseas. But over time, eventually, due to sort of the impromptu research that they conducted online and engaging in debates with their friends, compatriots, et cetera, both in person and online, they ended up deciding that the most proper group to lend their support to was the Islamic State. That's in contrast from sort of the second wave of American ISIS supporters who, especially after, as Shana said, the, the, the declaration of the caliphate are, you know, they're all ISIS from, from day one. They start off sort of their mobilization process with this understanding that ISIS is the only group to support. And all the act, there's never any debate about it. All the activities that they're conducting are in support of that one specific group. Whereas prior to the declaration of the caliphate, uh, the, the number of cases that you saw tended to be a mix where, you know, someone might be on the fence, uh, you know, should I support Al-Qaeda in Syria uh, or at the time Javad al-Nusra, or should I support ISIS or should I support one of these other groups that are operating there? Whereas, especially as you get later on into 2016, 2017, 2018, you know, it, it's clearly in direction of ISIS. And that's one sort of the major shifts that we see. The other one, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, is sort of the shift from individuals who are more interested in traveling overseas to join the group versus individuals who, who want to stay in the United States and conduct attacks on behalf of ISIS. And just to jump uh, in on that, actually, discussing sort of the decision of what kind of groups to join. You know, and one of the things we deal with early on in the book is try to explain sort of why do we focus specifically on ISIS? You know, we know that jihadism has appealed uh, to Americans and been present in America before ISIS emerged. And of course, Al-Qaeda was kind of the, the standard bearer of that for a long time. So why why do a book where we look only at ISIS in America? And so to justify that, there's a couple of kind of key reasons. I think most, probably most importantly, really, is that ISIS was just much more successful at recruiting and mobilizing Americans in a much shorter space of time. So in that way, it made it worthy of sort of analysis in its own right as well as the fact that in a way it's it's a bit of a different uh, beast, as it were, than Al-Qaeda. Uh, of course, having been this proto-state, having this territory that it was calling followers to in a way that uh, Al-Qaeda never did. So it was, it was worth kind of splitting the analysis up in the way that we did to focus uh, specifically on ISIS. And do we see individuals attracted to ISIS in a different light than foreign fighters from other nations that were attracted to ISIS? Or is it largely the same reasons and same messaging that appeal to Americans that were attracted to ISIS? Split it between, in, in, in sort of regionally, I'd say as far as why Westerners were attracted to ISIS, I don't think that the, the messaging was necessarily all that different when, when targeting Americans than it was Europeans. There, have, there are some subtle differences. ISIS does, for example, try to exploit and, and take advantage of specific racial uh, tensions and, and issues that are quite specific to the United States, or at least are seen as that right now. So there are, of course, a number of, of little things they try to exploit. But overall, I, I don't think there's a huge difference if you, if you look at it, at least from just the, the Western foreign fighter perspective. Yeah, and also if you're, you're looking at it from the, the messaging standpoint, what I think the book sort of characterizes as the main difference in terms of recruiting 
when you look at it in the United States context versus, say, in a, a Western European context. It goes back to Alex's point from before about the lack of physical grassroots networks. And these are sort of, sometimes they're linked to the organization, sometimes they're sort of independent of the organization. But in the United States, prior to sort of the declaration of the caliphate and the rise of ISIS, we don't see the same sort of physical Salafi jihadist activist networks that are operating in the United States in the same way that they did in, in Western Europe. You know, for instance, if you look at uh, a group like uh, Sharia 4, the Sharia 4 network in, in, in the UK and in Western Europe, or, you know, some of the groups that were operating in Germany, like Mulatu Ibrahim, which sort of served in the pre-Syria area as these Salafi activist incubators that later led to large networks of people from those activist networks joining ISIS. We don't see any sort of similar group in the United States. And I think what that ends up resulting in is the function of you could have a town, uh, there are multiple reports of several towns in, in Western Europe from which, you know, you have 20 or 30 people who are all friends, family, neighbors, et cetera, and they all going to join ISIS. In the United States, with maybe one minor exception, uh, that tends not to be the case. You know, it's more twos and threes rather than nines and tens and elevens in terms of the, the, the network groups that are joining ISIS. So I think that had a material result on both the numbers of people that you see. Like if you look at American foreign fighters per capita versus some of the European counterparts, the numbers just are not comparable. But then also in terms of how they're networked, all this sort of underlies a critical role of, of the internet, I think, for for ISIS recruitment in the United States, because in some cases it made up that infrastructure of recruitment that was lacking in the United States due to the absence of some of these physical recruitment networks. Yeah, and I, you know the book essentially argues at one point that you know without its access to the various kind of communications technology that have been emerging over the years, ISIS would have the, the impact on ISIS's presence in America would have probably been felt more than its presence in Europe. So it is on the its presence in America where the, de the dependence on technology is most heavy. And without it, it would have been, you know, I think much harder for them to have any, even, even the kind of minimal presence they do have, to have any, any meaningful presence. And sort of piggybacking off of what both Alex and Bennett just said, your book describes ISIS in America as largely self-contained. And I wanted to explore that a bit because I find it very interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, when we're talking about self-contained, we're, we're, we're not talking about mass movement by any means. And so, you know, geographic dis dispersion uh, matters. The fact that, that, that the U.S. is so far from Syria and Iraq compared to European um, countries matters too. But also, like, I, like we've talked about before, like there's not, you know, large scale, you know, there's nobody handing out leaflets at Times Square about how great um, the caliphate was. You know, you know, compared to say Sharia for UK in Birmingham or things like that. So largely, you're talking again about smaller numbers of people with a very aggressive, not putting uh, any judgment on on the morality of it, very aggressive law enforcement approach. And so the material support to terrorism clause allows for the FBI to interject themselves much earlier on in the process than most Western countries. And so you don't see these large scale networks build up. You know, you can, you can compare that to, say, domestic terrorism groups in, in the U.S. where have had relative free reign because there's not a material support statute on, on their side. And so you're not seeing this, this large-scale movement by any means. Yeah, and it's not a presence that is it's dependent on a huge amount of external support, either network or, or other type of, of support. And, and so in that sense, it's, it's also kind of self-sustaining and which explains why it's uh, partly explains why its presence is relatively uh, small compared to other European or Western countries. And I think that's, you know, quite an important thing to, to keep in mind. And it also makes it quite a difficult thing to fully stamp out. You know, I think the presence of, of ISIS in America, if, of course, it can be further mitigated, it can be further fought, but it might represent the kind of close to, uh, as close as one can get to, you know, Western open liberal democracy securing itself against ISIS. It kind of, that may be how it looks. The American model would be, you know, preferable to how things look in some European countries, for example. So it's a pretty uh, low level threat because of the fact that it's, it's self-sustaining and therefore quite hard to, you know, fully get rid of, at least in, you know, open, in an open society. Yeah. And I think like, back to Seamus's point, you know, if you're looking at a court document and you see that there's a meeting of three ISIS supporter guys or gals in the United States, there's nearly a 100% chance that one of those people is 
is either an FBI undercover employee or a confidential human source. So I think in general, that sort of put a clamp down on a lot of the ability of ISIS to form broader recruitment networks in the United States, just because gatherings of large people also increase the the risk for would-be ISIS sympathizers that at least one person was, was law enforcement. And kind of looking at ISIS versus other groups. We did see individuals here in the States join Al-Shabaab in the earlier 2000s, but why was ISIS better at attracting, let's say Americans, because that's what the book is focusing on, than say a big group like Al-Qaeda? So in terms of its, you know, relative success, there's probably a couple of things, some of it coincidence, other things to do with its its message. You know, one of the things we note early on is you you can pretty much track the the emergence of ISIS and it's and it's re, and it's beginning to outreach to Westerners and and then the growth of Western involvement. You, you can track that along with the growth of use of social media in wider society. You know the boom of the social media usage boom and the, the sort of daily active users figures became huge in the kind of first half of the last decade. So in the 2011, 10s, uh, 12, 13. So there's just that. There's the fact that ISIS emerged at a time when it had its most, you know, probably in a, m- a moment in history where, you know, I can't think of another time where a terrorist group had this much unfettered access to uh, an international audience as, as it did through largely unregulated social media for a long period of time in those early years. So there's there's that, I think, quite important factor. And then probably also the, you know, as has been pointed out by, by others as well, is it's, it's, it's relative success in achieving the caliphate project. And with that extra additional achievement, you know, that's an extra spur that someone needed to, to see, you know, potential recruits to see that there was an, a, you know, light at the end of the tunnel of, the, of all the, you know, the, the violence and the high risk activism, there was something achievable in the, in the Islamic state. And not only that, on top of that, you had this apocalyptic narrative where the, the end times was kind of being, you know, this was the catalyst of the end times, the ISIS presence in places like Derby. Uh, in that sense, you kind of, you create a sense a newer sense of urgency where, you, you know, the train is kind of leaving the station, as it were, for anyone who wants to do something for the religion. Now is your chance, because that's quite soon Judgment Day will be upon us and you have lost your opportunity to do your part. And so that added ur- urgency as well made them a different prospect and arguably a more attractive one than Al-Qaeda. We can't discount the ease of joining, uh, right? So if Al-Qaeda puts out a call and says, you know, Americans come join Al-Qaeda. What's your first step, right? Uh, where do you actually go to do that? What town do you travel to? Who do you talk to? There's a, a, it's a bit daunting if you're an American in, in Iowa trying to figure that out. Whereas when ISIS said, come join um, the Islamic State, you knew you had to get on a plane to Turkey, you had to go down the border, you had to reach out to someone on social media, they would pick you up, there'd be an intake form, you would go through the process for three to six weeks through religious indoctrination, weapon training. So there's a well-worn process and the bar is relatively low to join a terrorist organization. So we can't discount Americans' laziness of joining terrorist organizations, right? Uh, All of you have, of course, alluded to social media and the different propaganda and messaging that was disseminated on different platforms. So I'd like to talk about that a bit. And I think it was Alexander who mentioned specific messaging that appealed to certain issues here in the States to Americans. So let's talk about that. Sure. I mean, you know, the the general kinds of messages, you know, of course, differ depending on what period of, of ISIS activity that we're talking about you know early on the the bulk of the messaging in english was focused on this presentation of the the caliphate as this utopian achievement and, and this place that muslims around the world and, and western muslims should seek to travel to and, and help with the building building up of and and foundation of and that you know had an appeal to actually arguably a, a wider range of people than the later more violent stuff did. And, you know, there was, of course, you know, most people who joined ISIS, even in the early years, knew that they were joining a violent jihadist group. But, you know, in, in one or two interviews we did with with returnees, and of course, we have to take their testimony with some pinch of salt, of course. But if we were to take what they said at face value, we had at least one who mentioned that in his, he was one of the first Americans to travel to join ISIS. And he had, for a number of reasons in his life, had, had kind of begun to want to pursue a more pious existence and wanted to follow Islam 
properly and had really fallen under the impression, having begun researching Islam online, that, that, the, that ISIS was really this place where Islam was being properly practiced. And, and uh, hadn't, they hadn't yet really been, they hadn't committed any terrorist attacks. They hadn't yet done the Yazidi genocide. There was still some, arguably some ambiguity about what they were exactly about. And I think some people fell for that uh, type of messaging. And, you know, as I said, there was also, of course, specific attempts to take advantage of political moments in America. You know, one of the things that Islamists often say about Islamism as an as alternative ideology to, to other forms of existence or governance, you know, is that it, it transcends race and that, you know, any, any, you know, no matter where you're from, ethnically, you are accepted in Islam. And, and Islamic State made a lot of this and essentially kind of, you know, contrasting this in their, in their argument with the situation for Black Americans uh, in the United States. They said, you know, here in the Islamic State, you know, we have racial harmony and everyone is treated uh, equally, which actually in the end, on the, in reality, we find that there was actually racism even within uh, the ranks of, of Western recruits to ISIS. But, but yeah, so trying to take advantage of, of those moments, exploiting them, absolutely another key sort of way that they were trying to frame specific messages to appeal to Americans. I think also, you know, in, in discussing ISIS's messaging towards Americans, we always have to couple this idea of the, the broad-based messaging in English and towards Americans that was putting out towards a mass audience with sort of what we document in the book is sort of the more effective way, which is sort of this individual messaging that ISIS was able to propagate towards individual Americans using social media. I mean, I think in in the heyday of ISIS recruitment in America, you know, in, in 2014, 2015, you know, as law enforcement puts it, you could reach out and touch some of these senior figures in in the Islamic State, at least in in their teams that were responsible for for recruiting Westerners to, to join the cause, you know, it's possible for you know Elton Simpson, you know, sitting in his house with his roommate in Phoenix, Arizona, to send a Twitter direct message to Junaid Hussein in Raqqa and ask him various questions about uh, you know his dreams, ask him questions about how he should interpret the various roles and leadership positions in the Islamic State, and then ultimately ask him you know what the best method of of building propaganda around the attack that he was about to conduct at the Curtis Colwell Center in, in, in Garland, Texas in 2015 as well. There are some examples from that time period that sort of document that at the same time that there's the broad-based messaging going on on Twitter, on other sorts of platforms, there's also this one-to-one -one direct communication, not only between ISIS's uh, central leadership in in Syria and Iraq, but also between individual Americans, both online and offline, who are interested in ISIS's message, and you know, building together from the broad-based messaging and that one-to-one -one direct messaging is how I think a lot of the the scene in 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 America went. And it's notable that in these periods where these forms of one-to-one -one direct messaging are available through mainstream social media sites in the in the mid-2010s, that's when we see the peak of, of individuals who are charged with supporting ISIS in some form, sort of the, the heyday, as I said, of their recruitment efforts in the United States. Let's discuss the different types of involvements that Americans had with ISIS, because I know it's not just traveling or funding and so forth. So let's discuss the different categories that individuals here in the United States engaged in? So the book breaks it down into some major categories. Obviously, they're not all-inclusive. And within each of these, you know, broader macro categories, there's a number of different ways that the individuals do this. But, you know, we've broken it down into the travelers, the terrorists, i.e. The, the people who conducted attacks, the e-activists, i.e. the people who were responsible for messaging online and distributing and uh, disseminating propaganda, and then the ideologues who are sort of the core religious inspiration who are rebroadcasting ISIS's message to an English audience using their religious authorities or quasi-religious authorities to do so. So that's the, the overwhelming categories we use for the book. Obviously, within each of those categories, there's a range of different ways that supporters of the Islamic State in the United States have chosen to carry out those activities, but we found them helpful to sort of break it down a little further into, into their component parts. And would it be possible to provide some case studies of individuals who engaged in one or more of these, what's the right word, ways of being part or supporting ISIS? 
Yeah, maybe I can jump in with a, with a few examples. So, you know, the idea of ISIS in America seems like a very daunting task, right? So, if you kind of break it down, uh, a good example would be there was a lunch lady in Missouri who was part of a crew of folks who supported a guy named Abdullah Bazara, who was um, an American who became a mid-level commander uh, in ISIS. And so, her level of support was sending Mr. Bazara some Swiss Miss hot chocolate because he missed it, the comforts of, of home. And so, that's her support for ISIS, right? That's a different level of support than, say, committing a terrorist attack at the Pulse, Pulse nightclub, right? They're, they're, they're on different categories. If you look at like somebody like Safi Yassin from Missouri, who had 79 different Twitter accounts and was retweeting and encouraging attacks, but also connecting folks to recruiters in Syria and Iraq, that's another level of support. Another one to look at would be Asher Khan from Texas, who, after he decides to not join the Islamic State, continues on to let help his friend Sixto Garcia with connections to recruiters in Turkey who walk Sixto um, past the border and on to Syria. So very different levels of support. It, it ranges from you know money changing hands to Swiss Miss hot chocolate to you know terrorist attacks in Ohio State with a, with a car. And so it is very much a spectrum of support. On the Swiss Miss hot chocolate instant, instance, someone providing hot chocolate, what type of law enforcement and say repercussions are given to someone for basically sending hot chocolate over to someone that has joined ISIS. I'm, I'm just very curious. So, so Alex hates this example. This is why I'm going to continue using it every time we do a, do a <laughs> conversation. So, and I actually absolutely did to troll him. So Swiss Miss Hot Chocolate, it, material sports terrorism is a very broad statute on the book. It's 18 USC 2339 A and B and C, right? Material support can be yourself. So if I drive to O'Hare Airport and I'm going to go join the Islamic State, the material is myself. I'm a, I'm a personnel for the Islamic State. That's material support. If uh, a guy named um, Sudani in Raqqa asked for $250 through Western Union and you send it, that's material support. If Abdullah Pizarra is hanging out running a, a tank battalion and he really likes Swiss Miss hot chocolate and you help ship that hot chocolate overseas to provide some aid and comfort to his cold and lonely nights, that is material sports terrorism too. Now, the judge looks at those things, would look at those things differently, right? So that that lunch lady in Missouri who sent the, the, the packet, I think she got about two years, right? Whereas if you sent money and support to al-Sudani, like um, Emmanuel Lutchman did, you're looking at, at 20 years. Or if you tried to drive to O'Hare Airport, 20 plus years. And so there is some, or at least um, understanding that the levels are different within the, the legal system. But as a baseline, it, it doesn't really matter what material support you provide. As long as you provide material support, you can be charged. Yeah, and this is actually important more widely as far as generally what the book offers. You know, one of the other things it's, it's doing is offering a pretty unique insight into you know, how ISIS in America is combated and what kind of unique tools the United States has that perhaps other Western countries that have a similar problem don't have, but also the things that the United States is lacking right now. And the material support statute is probably the single thing that really separates the American approach uh, to dealing with ISIS and particularly the foreign fighters and the travelers that separates the United States approach to Europe and makes the United States a much more effective entity when it comes to preventing and, and charging folks. And so and if the fact that the material support statute existed before the emergence of ISIS and has acted as an incredibly useful tool to do exactly what Seamus mentioned, which is how do you deal with individuals who uh, perhaps don't have official connections to terrorist groups, who are not officially members, who you cannot connect enough to, to, to arrest or, or to convict, you know, because the nature of the ISIS threat, is, as we've shown, is, is so diffuse and so difficult to completely pin down. You know, you can be incredibly effective for ISIS and incredibly dangerous without being officially associated with it. And this is a problem that they've had, you know, in, in the UK, for example, and in, in other European countries, they've struggled a lot to firstly stop people that they know are going to join. At, you know, we're talking now in the heyday of ISIS, of course, they had they struggled to stop people who, you know, British citizens flying from Heathrow, going through Turkey into, into Syria. They may have known what they were doing, but there was no law that prevented them from, or that, that empowered anyone to stop them from doing it. Uh, whereas in the US, if you could prove those, those connections and those, that intent to offer material support, you could stop them. 
And this is gonna. This is also a problem for return return foreign fighters in, in in Europe is that they don't have in some cases leg legislation to actually convict them of anything, even if they have evidence that they were in somewhere other associated with ISIS abroad. So that makes America quite distinctive. I think the material support in particular. And as far as areas where the U.S. is is lacking, we see that more uh, in the preventative approaches. So what we call under the umbrella of CVE or combating violent extremism, or sort of de-radicalization, disengagement prevention programs, things like that. That's where the United States is behind Europe most for a number of, of reasons. And where we found, you know, there's probably one of the biggest areas for improvement. You know, one of the think, stats that we, or, or facts that we often point out to, 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 you know, really highlight this is that in the U.S. prison system, there is no program right now to help de-radicalize or disengage or rehabilitate extremists of, of any type. At least last time we checked, you know, that, that's probably going to change, but there wasn't one, you know, a year ago, which is quite striking, you know, given the, how, you know, the problem that they, they have with, you know, people coming out of prison soon, convicted of various ISIS or Al-Qaeda related offenses. It's worth repeating also that the, 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 the woman in question also sent, I think about like seven or eight hundred dollars and was involved in a broader conspiracy to send weapon parts to, to Pizarro as well. So I, I guess it's a little more than hot chocolate, but it would have been interesting for, you know, for for, for analysis to see what would have happened if she had just sent the Swiss Miss and, and nothing else alongside it to see if they really would have charged her with materials. So Alex mentioned the differences with the laws here in the States, material support, et cetera, and the case of individuals leaving Heathrow to go to Turkey and then cross the border into Syria. And I know a lot of cases here in the States, we see individuals that actively end up at an airport being arrested because there is evidence that they are traveling to Syria. And I want to talk about that a bit because um, looking at a lot of cases here in the States, you see this as a common thing that has happened. Well, you know, I think one of the common factors that I think we pointed out a bit earlier was the the presence often in, in investigations of either undercover employees or other, other type of informants who are helping the agents monitor the progress of, of, of the plot. Uh, up to the point where they can make an arrest. So in the cases where people are arrested at the border, as it were, or trying to board the plane, usually, you know, usually I'd say, oh, Seamus could correct me because he knows uh, the, the exact details, but, you know, probably never has, has it not been the case where, the, you know, that's a result of a longer term investigation that had been taking place and, and uh, uh, surveillance that had been happening up until the point of, of arrest. So it's, these are often very well managed and controlled, you know, to the point where, you know, they, they can make arrests and not put people in danger. And I think, you know, that it, usually the, the information they get is a mix of, of course, the informants and undercover employees, but also social media activity. Uh, crucially, you know, they were able to see messages between known recruiters who uh, had been identified as helping people travel to, uh, particularly travel through Turkey into, into Syria. You know, being able to identify the kind of social, social media red flags, as it were, also was very helpful for any kind of case where people were stopped from, from traveling. In some cases, the suspicion arose at the uh, passport application office, you know, where an uh, a federal employee noticed a strange reasons given for passport applications, and that in itself became an investigation that led to a lot of arrests. Yeah, and I think that that last point bears repeating as well, that in some cases, regardless of whether it's an individual who's interested in traveling overseas or committing an attack, you know, we were able to get a lot of color from the interviews that we did with, with prosecutors and, and law enforcement about some of these cases and the line between a successful plot and a disruptive plot, at least in the United States context, well, we, we mentioned all these investigative tools. It's very, very thin. You know, it rests on a lot of these split-second decisions or simple mistakes made by the subjects of the investigation in general that completely change the face of the investigation. Like the example that Alex just get, did in adding a little bit more color, you know, those were two young men from Minneapolis who were interested in traveling to, to Syria together. And, you know, both of them went to the passport office on the same day and they had back-to-back -back interviews and they had basically their story set. They were going to Turkey they were going to go visit the Blue Mosque, and then they were going to go see all the sightseeing uh, opportunities in Istanbul and stuff like that. There, so you have one guy, essentially, Abdinur, who completely aces the interview with the passport application office and things like that. 
he gets his passport renewed. He's free to go. A couple days later, he travels to Turkey and then onward to Syria, where he joins ISIS and is later killed while fighting for ISIS, presumably. The other individual, he bombs the interview. I think he gets the color of the mosque wrong in Istanbul. I think that was one of the, the details that came up. He said maybe like the green mosque or something like that. Instead, you know, botches some of the details and he's nervous and, and shaking. And essentially the, the, the passport employee that day was so concerned about this person's behavior that they informed their supervisor. You know, the result of that is the, the second individual doesn't get his passport to go to Turkey. Instead, you know, a couple of days later, the, the FBI interdicts him and he's charged with attempting to provide material support to terrorists and goes to jail as a result of it as well. So there's all these instances throughout our book of sort of these split second, you know, life or death decisions for for some of these investigations. In another case we looked at involving an individual in, in Virginia that was planning an attack, Mohammed Baylor Jala, you know, there was essentially, they described it at one point, you know, he was under active investigation, had been talking to some ISIS facilitators in Syria. And then, you know, one day during the investigation, he starts driving to the airport and <laughs> the, the, the folks we interviewed described this as, you know, that's a, that a cat, that's a catastrophic moment for the investigation. They think they're, he's about to, you know, go hop on a plane and, you know, travel to Syria or somewhere else to join ISIS. It turns out he was just picking up some of his relatives for the airport, but, you know, you get a sense during some of these interviews of the very split second decisions that go into these investigations. Because if they had arrested him at that point in time, you know, the case might have fallen apart. There might not have been a case to make at all. And, you know, they would just have to have released him. And there's constantly this push-pull because no nobody involved in any of these investigations is trying to arrest somebody for no reason or entrap them or do something else like that. But at the same time, you know, essentially you're waiting around for somebody to make that overt act, either to go travel, to conduct a, an attack or do something else like that. And in some cases, you might not have that much warning. And we, we saw that particularly with the, the, the group of individuals who are interested in conducting attacks. I mean, ISIS, you know, promoted this idea of conducting attacks in the United States of this use whatever you have at your disposal mentality, you know, go rent a truck, go buy a knife, you know, find some low-tech method of attack to use and just go ahead and do it. And that doesn't raise the same red flags maybe for law enforcement that it would maybe if, for instance, you were planning on buying a bomb or using a gun or, or some of these other types of methods uh, like that as well. So I think especially with regards to an attacks, that's one of the major things that we saw is, is, is sort of these, you know, thin lines between successful and disrupted plots. Yeah, so just to also jump in on that. I mean, the, the Jallo case in Virginia is, is yeah, is probably one of the more fascinating cases we look at also because of the, we offer the insight into the workings of the investigation into him. And, you know, we interviewed the, the agents who were tasked with that case. And it, as, as Bennett said, it, it, it showed the kind of razor sharp margins that they're dealing with, uh, the risks that they have to constantly balance, you know, operating within the law while keeping people safe, you know, the, the classic balance between counterterrorism and civil liberties that, you know, FBI agents are kind of constantly having to, to be in the, in the front lines of. And, you know, one of the other things with that case actually is, you know, the, the mix of great, you know, work, hard work and, and investigative work and, and, and just a bit, little bits of luck, e even the, the, the way that they came across Jalo in the first place, as far as we know, it was because they, they had an informant who was in conversation with a known ISIS uh, recruiter based in, in sort of ISIS territory who was himself, you know, uh, recruiting and managing a number of ISIS uh, supporters or inspired ISIS supporters in the West. And uh, the name Jalo was mentioned uh, by this operate this ISIS operator to the undercover agent or the informant. And from that point on, they, they, they were able to begin the investigation on Jalo. Without that little bit of information, they would have unlikely, it was unlikely they would have actually come across him in time. And it looked like actually the main thing that was in, had inspired him was the Fort Hood attack carried out by Nid al-Hassan years ago and much more during the Al-Qaeda era. And of course, one of the biggest terrorist attacks in U.S. soil. And he also, Jalo was a former army reservist and was, was very inspired to commit something like that and, and had even gone to uh, purchase a rifle 
and in fact, this is uh, part of the investigation, tells how when he goes to purchase the rifle, you know, the agents are watching him. And for one reason or another, he, he leaves the rifle at, at the gun shop in Virginia, I think, and go, he plans to come back the next day to buy, buy the rifle. In the interim, the agents actually go and speak to the gun store owner or the employee who, who was uh, involved with discussing the sale of the gun with Jalo and in, put him in the loop and told him that, you know, tomorrow this guy is going to come and buy this gun, but we're going to deactivate it and make it safe. And in a way, this sort of civilian all of a sudden found himself wrapped up in this case. And it became obvious to him without them telling him that they were he was dealing with a potential terrorist case. And sort of this this moment that that we capture in the book is quite surreal, really. I think this is the perfect segue to discuss successful ISIS-related attacks here in the States. And if I remember correctly, I think it's about 13. And on this topic, I want to talk about what constitutes ISIS-inspired? For me, I always grapple with this concept since inspiration can mean a number of things. And as you even mentioned in the book, some of these individuals that did conduct successful attacks had ISIS material, but yet they also had material from the greater jihadist movement. So let's unpack this a bit. Ben, why don't you you take this one? Because I think you've died into this. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right to point out that there's a spectrum of what constitutes, you know, what we what we consider inspiration from the Islamic State. We tried to reduce the number of cases. I mean, there's a number of cases in which, you know, ISIS was brought up, but it never really formed sort of the cornerstone of that sort of individual's worldview or a couple other cases where it was clouded by other decision making. But it does exist on a spectrum where you have individuals who are interacting with the movement more broadly or interacting with some of the key individuals in it all the way up to, you know, somebody like Omar Mateen, the perpetrator of the Pulse nightclub shooting, who I think is an interesting test case because Although you have some previous evidence prior to the the shooting that he was involved in and researching a bunch of other types of jihadist ideologies, including, you know, at various times professing himself to be a supporter of Hezbollah, Hamas, the Taliban, you know, ultimately as the shooting is being perpetrated, he calls 911 and mentioning erroneously by name uh, a medium level ISIS figure who had been killed in a, in a drone strike in the preceding weeks before the attack, declares Bayak, declares allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi during the commission of the attack. So that's sort of the, the spectrum on which it exists. I mean, I think in most of the cases, you have individuals who are you know, via some sort of written statement, via some sort of mechanism of propaganda that they have, or it's clear that ISIS is making up the the variable that drove them to conduct the attack. Now, that being said, the way we sorted out by the in the report is that we separate it into all the individual attacks that we know had some primary nexus to ISIS in terms of inspiration. But then we also mention, and I believe it's a more more small number. Uh, the number of attacks that were expressly claimed uh, by the Islamic State through their various propaganda outlets in in the United States. Now, that's also a a sort of a faulty mechanism in a way because ISIS has claimed attacks in the United States, most notably uh, a shooting in Las Vegas, to which available evidence suggests that they had pretty little to do with, if nothing at all to do with as well. So no matter how how many times you try to divide up the beast, I think you do run into some of these methodological issues in terms of, you know, inspiration and attack and everything. And we're going off the basic record of evidence. Obviously, it's it's very difficult to get inside a, a perpetrator's head. But then the other side of it as well is that these are the things that are common for the norm. You know, nowadays, the, the FBI talks about uh, buffet table extremism, where especially individuals who have a proclivity to conduct violent attacks on behalf of terrorist groups are essentially, you know, going down the buffet table and taking snippets of various ideologies that they like to justify their own attacks and form their own sort of social realities in their head in terms of why they're doing what they're doing. And in some cases, it makes it really, really difficult for from a methodological perspective of an extremism researcher, just because, you know, in at times, the way that they're taking bits and pieces of these ideologies together and merging them to justify violent action, you know, they're taking various ideologies that are directly contradictory to each other. And I gave the, the Mateen example before, you know, obviously for Mateen, the idea that 
Hezbollah was a, a Shia jihadi group and, you know, ISIS and some of the various other groups to which he was claiming support, you know, have this deep hatred for, for Shia groups, uh, including Hezbollah, didn't seem to phase them that much as they were going through this process as well. But that's the way we try to sort it out. And I think another stat that's important here as well is that, you know, we have somewhere in the ballpark of 12, 13 ISIS-inspired attacks in the United States. But at the same time, the FBI disrupted, I think it's about 50 plots by ISIS supporters to conduct violence in the same time frame. Uh, so with that statistic in mind, you get, I think, a little bit of a broader sense of the type of activity that was that was being undertaken by, by ISIS supporters in the United States, at least in terms of planning attacks and other violent acts. Yeah, and I think just to also touch on the this issue of how do you kind of separate inspired from, from other types of attacks, and you mentioned Omar Mateen. I, th I think you know the, what, probably the first major ISIS-related attack in the U.S. Uh, December 2015, of course, the whole question of how do you understand the different type of attack and what does inspired mean, and, and how do we, you know, what other kind of attacks does, does ISIS pursue or, or tactics does ISIS pursue in the United States? Bennett mentioned Omar Mateen, and also we have December 2015, San Bernardino shooting 14 people killed. Syed Farouk and his wife, Tafsin Malik, had no uh, meaningful connection at all uh, to ISIS, but but did pledge allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Farouk in particular had a history of, of extremist leanings and had long been a fan of Anwar Awlaki and others. So you have those kind of attacks. And in fact, you know, some of the most deadly have actually been these kind. But another type that we look at in, in the in the book, and particularly looking at how, how important uh, modern communication technology and emerging technologies has been, are you know, the kind of online enabled attacks. So attacks that are kind of, or plots that are directed by ISIS via what we people we define as virtual entrepreneurs, most famously probably ex or sort of British citizen Junaid Hussein, who, you know, based in ISIS territory in Raqqa, using a sort of, you know, having built up a, a big reputation online and became known as this famous foreign fighter, was using his cloud and his influence to actually reach out to Americans and help them and direct their plots rather than simply act as an inspiration to actually get down to the nitty gritty of, of, of what they should do. And uh, we already talked about the Curtis Caldwell Center attack or attempted attack by Elton Simpson and Nadir Sufi. That's probably the, one of the biggest examples of, of an attack that had involved one of these virtual entrepreneurs that wasn't purely uh, a couple of, of guys or, or one individual who was acting entirely on their own, but inspired by reading and, and engaging in ISIS material online. These were individuals who were actually in touch with someone who were actually being hand, you know, had a, essentially an ISIS handler. Uh, who was overseeing the plot and giving them all the details that they needed to do it effectively. So in that way, this kind of, it's a sort of hybrid between what we, the kind of inspired lone actor and the more old fashioned, as it were, directed, top down directed attack. We have this kind of modern fusion of these two where you have this sort of online enabled and directed, but, but really no physical connection or, or no training or official association with the group. And that's quite an important distinction between sort of the inspired and this maybe inspired slash online directed attacks. So bearing in mind all of the lessons you've learned from doing this research, how can we apply it to potentially future cases? And also considering all that has happened here in the States in the last number of months, can we apply some of these lessons to domestic terrorism or do the differences in laws hinder that? Maybe I can jump in on the first part or the second part and then my colleagues can add in. For domestic terrorism, I think one of the domestic extremism, one of the lessons we, we should take from the book is that when it looks at ISIS support in the U.S., it, again, not largely a, a mass movement by any means. And so a lot of that has to do with an aggressive law enforcement approach to it. And so if you saw, you, you I would be loath to find 12 people training in Georgia to fight for ISIS, right? Because, you know, nine of them would be FBI agents, right? Yeah. You could not see. You can see that same dynamic happening for, say, um, the base or Adamwaffen with the compound in Georgia, and you know none of them were FBI agents, right? So th there is something to be said about stopping a network from from forming because you know the more they these guys train and get some level of of support and operational understanding and capabilities, it makes the the threat of them more dangerous. And so I think we, we will see an increase. In fact, we already have seen an increase of law enforcement efforts when it comes to domestic extremism particularly as using January 6 as the predicate to a broader investigation into, you know, say groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. And so that's, that's one of the lessons to, to look at on this. 
Yeah, I, I think also one of the bigger overall points that we also make is we've kind of now fully accepted that America isn't uniquely resistant against homegrown jihadism, at least. You know, there was this period of time when after 9-11, when Europe was, was having this, this issue with homegrown radicalization, homegrown jihadism, you know, their own citizens recruiting, attacking, joining foreign terrorist groups. And it was seen uh, as a sort of European issue and something that America, for one reason or another, wasn't as vulnerable to. And sort of the ideas kind of tossed around like the American dream and things like this were, were protecting us from this this kind of thing. And I think we look back on in the book on those kind of comments like that, even by government officials, as, as being a little bit naive, perhaps, and, and didn't see what was kind of more obviously actually coming one way or the other. So that, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. More specifically about kind of lessons learned moving forward, certainly I think the increased importance of figuring out what prevention looks like. How do you identify individuals who are close to committing an act of, of extremism or illegally, so you know, violence or otherwise, and, and stopping them from doing that? Very difficult, very controversial, but clearly something that is needed in one form or another. Uh, and there's no reason why this should only apply to jihadists. We actually have now you know, about a decade of in, in Western countries of experience of how you conduct prevention programs. Many of them actually kind of look like intervention programs that kind of mentor intervenes uh, in the same way as you might have with uh, anti-gang programs that have been around for a long time. So a tried and tested method. Kind of the importance of that, you know, when we spoke to prosecutors, FBI agents, it was clear that there was a sense that they wanted other options beyond arrest, especially when dealing with young young kids who, you know, clearly were making stupid decisions that were going to lead them to ruining their lives or portions of their lives. And you could see that there were, you know, there were prosecutors there who kind of didn't want to be only arresting these, these, these kids and having a, an opportunity to give them another option. And one of those, you know, we talk about it in the book in detail in the Countering Violent Extremism chapter, you know, is the sort of emerging intervention program that was, that has been sort of uh, flagged uh, headed up by a former New York district attorney and how important it might be for at a federal level for something like this to gain more support. And again, to deal with all, all types of extremism, because in, you know it would be good if there was mechanisms in place that could view some of these cases of, of radicalization as really people who are vulnerable and need protection rather in, and are sort of either too young or otherwise vulnerable to you know kind of figure these things out for themselves, often due to their age or their you know, socioeconomic situations to give them the state another option beyond arrest or, you know, getting informants involved. And there's, I think, an appetite for that is emerging in the Justice Department, a section of the Justice Department in the U.S., I, I think, and I hope that increases. Yeah, the last thing I would sort of add to this, and I think the big sort of policy issue in terms of applying what we've learned from the fight against homegrown violent extremism to domestic violent extremism and sort of the, the center policy issue is, you know, we've talked a lot today about the material support statute and its benefits and detriments. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about the application of a similar law to, to domestic terrorism. The one, so I don't think uh, it's possible based off the book to generalize or, or put it, you know, a, a definitive answer on that to that problem. But I think one lesson from the book in terms of looking at that debate specifically is exactly what percentage of the activities of a violent extremist group nowadays does the domestic terrorism support, excuse me, does the material support to terrorism statute cover? Because one thing we noticed, uh, especially in, comparison, in comparing it to previous waves of prosecutions of uh, homegrown jihadists in the United States, is that less of the ISIS cases that actually involve some violation of the material support statute. We're dealing with not 100% of cases, but only about 70% of cases involve some violation of material support. Now, obviously, to date, the, the numbers for that in terms of domestic violent extremists are going to be a lot lower, down to, to, to you know, the tens or 20% uh, range. But that being said, it's worth considering that, you know, terrorist groups in general over the past 10, 15 years have adopted a lot of their activities with some of the new technologies that have come out and some of the new methods of, of carrying out violent activity to specifically avoid interdiction by law enforcement using things like the material support statute. So you can see in many ways ISIS adoption of 
these low-tech terrorism tools, especially the use of vehicular assaults, as partially a way to avoid the, the criminal threshold for provision of material support. And you know, some of these other methods as well that we're seeing, you know, especially with regard to the production of propaganda, other charges like that involve other charges in, in, in the federal criminal code that contain much less uh, of a punishment, if at all, for, for these types of activities as well. So it's worth uh, considering, you know, if we are going to apply a similar version of this law to domestic terrorism, are the groups that we have that are the main threats right now carrying out their activities in a similar way? Like how, what percentage of their activities or the, the people that you're aiming to prosecute activities be covered by a similar version of the material support statute? Because, you know, with, with regard to a certain number of those groups, you know, if they're following the same sort of strategic adaptations that ISIS did, that we've documented in the book, you're no, you're covering a, a decent chunk of the, the, the supporters who you may not be able to prosecute using that statute, which would limit its its effectiveness in application. Well, we like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we haven't touched on or have a final say about something. And there's so much information in this book, so I highly recommend listeners read it. But I would like to hand over the floor to all of you to maybe give a final thought or something that we weren't able to touch on in the full conversation. So why don't we let Seamus start and maybe go to Bennett and then Alex? Great. Well, first of all, thank you for having us. You know, one of the, the things to think about here is, you know, I consider that we, we did the best we could in terms of interviewing as many people as possible. We, we left as many stones turned as possible. We, we called everyone. We talked to law enforcement. We talked to folks that traveled. We hope it's a relatively uh, comprehensive look at ISIS in America. In fact, I, I think it is. But I would note, you know, we're still learning. Right. So, you know, two weeks ago, we found a new case that was just unsealed and we're filing motions to unseal now about a returning foreign fighter who was directed by ISIS. And so while the story of ISIS in America is written in in this phenomenal book that everyone should pick up, there is still more to be learned uh, about it and we'll keep at it. Alex? Shame stole my thunder. Oh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. No, I mean, I only have limited comments because Seamus stole my thunder in terms of, you know, the ever-developing nature of this. I mean, I don't think conclusively, I think we're jumping the gun maybe potentially a little bit by writing it directly after. But I I mean, this is a story that's not going to be told in full for maybe decades down the road. And, you know, you're not seeing any signs, I think, that it's completely ceased. I I, I mean, ISIS has completely ceased its inspiration of of Americans. And, you know, the, the fortunes are ever scheduled to change, you know, based off the organization's capability and capacity overseas. You know, if it builds back up that presence, uh, especially its physical presence and especially its ability to recruit and direct uh, Westerners, uh, you know, the res- the likelihood of a resurgence is not outside the realm of possibility, at least in terms of supporters. And we've learned that also in terms of the number of Americans who are inspired by groups like uh, Al-Qaeda as well. You know, that hasn't stopped due to the downturn in, in fortunes, especially earlier this week, there was a individual who was uh, arrested in California and charged with providing support to in Syria. So it just goes to show as well that you know, I think especially now, given the current landscape of extremism in the United States, you know, we're in the situation where we're going to have to fight multiple forms of extremism at the same time. You know, with all the attention towards domestic violent extremism, the homegrown violent extremist threats has in no means gone away. And a lot of that requires the tough work from law enforcement, but then also in terms of the public's understanding of the problem as well and, and, and dedicating what resources need to be dedicated towards that problem. Sure. I, I think the one thing to keep in mind, again, speaking of both jihadists and as well as domestic violent extremism, is there are some fundamental issues that, that make these problems very difficult to completely overcome. And the book does cover some of this as far as the sort of fundamental challenges that you cannot completely get rid of. One example we give is, you know, one of the chapters is titled The, the Ideologues. And sort of we give as we've discussed, we've, we've kind of give a breakdown of the different types of involvement, the different, you know, sort of characters involved in the story of, of ISIS in America. And one of those is the ideologue, the uh, really small handful of individuals, some American, all of them fluent English speakers, who have uh, a lot of influence and authority among a, a relatively small subset of, of Western Muslims, but, but you know, large uh, numbers, you know, from sort of a terrorism perspective, because you don't, of course, need too many to mobilize for it to become a problem. And, you know, the, what we've seen from 
probably the most well-known example currently is, is an American called Ahmed Musa Jibril. And, you know, he's gone to prison before, but never for uh, terrorism offenses, despite the fact that he acts as, as quite an important inspiration for Americans and other English speakers uh, who go on to support ISIS. And he does this without really breaking any, any laws. And, and I think we found that there comes a point that there is a limit to how much you can actually stop it, even if it's quite brazen. And, and that may have to do with the fact they're protected by free speech laws in the United States. Or in the case of someone like Abdullah al-Faisal, another very important ideologue who's been who's acted as a facilitator and inspiration for a lot of U.S. ISIS cases, they operate abroad, but through online platforms have very easy access to Americans and platforms that are really hard to police, you know, that have servers outside of the United States and, and other things like this. And so, you know, with the ideologues, you probably, you know, you reach a point where there's only so much you can do to completely stop what, you know, the influence that they're, that, and quite outsized influence that they pose. And just as a general thing to keep in mind as these threats develop is in the end, there are uh, some constraints that cannot be completely you know, overcome. And, you know, we have to accept some level of, of threat. Now, that's not to say that it can't continue to be reduced, but they, they, in the end, authorities uh, do come up against some brick walls. And the ideologues in particular are a very good uh, example of that, I think. And, you know, more widely, as we see you know, domestic or extreme right forms of, of violence become more and more popular. You know, it's likely that these two forms of, of extremism are going to compete for our attentions and, and, you know, we're going to see attacks from both most likely. Uh, it's probably worth, you know, asking ourselves, what is it that these two movements are, are offering people that makes them successful today, the two most successful extremist movements in the United States or in the West? What is it that they're offering that, that gives them an appeal? What's going on? What, in what way do they shed light on wider issues in our society. And that's also a kind of question that once we get more to grips with, we can probably look at how we can solve some of those issues as well. Very wise words to end on. And there's just so much in this book to discuss. And I know we couldn't touch on all of it in the talk, so I hope we've done it justice. But like I said, I recommend people read it because it's really a great read. So thank you so much, Seamus Bennett and Alexander, for coming on the show. It's really great to have you all on, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for having us. Thank you.